I really also hope that you've been enjoying this six-week preaching series that we've been in teaching about people who've encountered Jesus in the Gospels and uh, all that that has meant for them in terms of healing and forgiveness and salvation and freedom. Today we're going to close out that series and uh, we're considering another Gospel encounter, but this time we're looking uh, at an encounter between Jesus and Satan from Luke 4. This is a story called Jesus is Tested in the Wilderness. Now, I always want to sound a note of caution when talking about Jesus and Satan in the same context, because I never want to give the impression that they are in some way equals, that kind of Satan is the equal and opposite of Jesus, or that good and evil are sort of finely and equally balanced in the world like an arm wrestle that could go either way. That's, that's just not what the Bible teaches. That's not the biblical narrative at all. I'm not sure if uh, anyone's read the book or seen the show Good Omens. It's Michael Sheen and David Tennant. Michael Sheen plays a good angel, and David Tennant is a demon. And the premise of the show is that these guys end up having to work together to prevent the end of the world. And predictably, many of the transactions between them revolve around Michael Sheen, the good angel, trying to take the right approach to things, but he kind of plays a little bit of a bumbling, almost nerdy character, whilst David Tennant, the demon, is obviously much lower down on the moral scale, but he's the kind of fun and cool guy. And uh, there's always the sense that the fun, cool guy is going to topple or overrule the sensible good guy. That's a fun idea, but uh, it's just not a biblical reality. So straight up at the start of this message, I just want to remind us what the Bible teaches, that Satan is an already defeated foe. His game is already up. He is in no way equal to God. He's never been a rival to God. He was made by God. And when he decided to try and rival God out of his own blind, selfish pride, well, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture reminds us what happened after that. In Luke 10, 18, Jesus is teaching the disciples, and he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's not the kind of exit from heaven down the front steps of the kingdom that Satan would want you to believe he had. There was no sense of equal footing with God when he was expelled from God's presence like a ball of lightning being hurled from the skies. More on that later on, but it's going to be important to remember that as we read this morning's passage, that Satan is an already defeated enemy. Always was, always will be. Jesus is the champion of history. If you take nothing else away from this morning, that should be sufficient because it means that in any hellish trial or situation you may find yourself in, victory through Jesus is 100% possible. If your soul is in Jesus this morning, you find yourself in a place where victory over any trial is possible. All of that being the case, let's read our passage. It's uh, Luke 4, verse 1 to 13. If you've got a Bible, you might want to follow along. It'll come up on the screen as well. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. It's an understatement, I'm sure. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. 
The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has all been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, just throw yourself down from here. Because it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in your hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Okay, now you'll notice that at the very start of this passage, Jesus is leaving the Jordan and being led by the Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness. And this is fascinating because Jesus was at the Jordan in the first place because he'd just been baptized there by John the Baptist. In, in that story, Jesus comes up out of the water of baptism and it says the Spirit of God descended on him and now that same Spirit has led him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So what's happening here? The baptism of Jesus was the point at which Jesus would enter into his earthly ministry. And here, in preparation for that ministry, the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness where he will be tested in order to manifest his faithfulness and his purity. In other words, just as Jesus is about to begin his earthly ministry in which he will announce this new kingdom that God is establishing, a kingdom characterized by all the stories that we've heard so far in this series about people being healed and delivered from demons and saved, just as this is all about to start, this encounter between Jesus and Satan is orchestrated by God. It's the spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness trial with Satan in order to make clear and to answer the question, what kind of king will this Jesus be? And what will his kingdom be like? And these questions will be answered in the way that Jesus resists Satan in the wilderness. Satan says to Jesus, you're hungry. Just turn these stones into bread. So will Jesus be a magical wonder worker? Will his ministry be about impressing people with his fine tricks? Will his kingdom be about serving his own needs? That's what turning stone to bread would have been about after a 40-day fast. How about throwing himself off a high building? Again, is Jesus the king going to be all about how physically powerful he is or about his self-protection and how untouchable he is? How about bowing down to Satan in order to receive all the kingdoms of the world? Jesus had done that. He'd have proved himself no better than Satan, whose whole attitude was, I'm out for myself. I'm all out to build an empire for my glory, and I'll do whatever it takes to achieve that. I have no need of God. It should all be mine anyway. Therefore, worship me. And so, right at the start of his ministry, in the intensity and the heat and the discomfort and the sacrifice and the weakness of six weeks in the desert without food, Luke tells us that Jesus rejected all of these things. He rejected all that Satan stands for. He rejected all that would have provided him with worldly satisfaction and pleasure, choosing instead obedience to the Father. That's the kind of king that Jesus would be. And we also see in this encounter that 
Jesus wasn't going to be like the kings that had come before him. He wasn't like the Caesars who resided in luxurious palaces. He wasn't going to be like the Roman gods who made humanity as a kind of plaything for their amusement. This was a king who would suffer and endure sacrifice and lowliness, humility, hardship and suffering would be a a hallmark of his life. Fasting, prayer, trusting God, standing on his word, opposing the lure of the world, being a man not of palatial luxury, but of wilderness suffering. That would be the type of king he would be. A king who would come, in his own words, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he would do this all out of obedience to God and a, and a love for mankind, the same mankind that three years later would arrest him and beat him and flog him and mock him and crucify him. And so here we are presented with this episode in which Jesus the man is brought out in the weakness of a 40-day fast to face a trial which I'm praying and have been praying this week will do two things for us. Number one, it'll increase our confidence in our perfect, righteous king. And number two, it'll open our eyes to the tactics of our adversary, Satan, and give us a model for how to overcome him when we face trials and temptations. Satan offers Jesus much. It's, it's one of his tactics, and we need to be aware of this. It's, it's classic switch and bait. He does this all the time. Here you are. I can offer you pleasure and power. What are you after? Something that'll satisfy your appetite, whatever that appetite is? Yeah, sure. Power or security? No problem. There you go. Just take it. It'll make you feel better. And by the way, here's separation from God and death and destruction to go with it. It's all in the small print. It's always been like this. It's not blatant or brash. It's, it's often just sneaky. There is often a kernel of truth about it. It's his way to take what is right and twist and distort it and offer it back to you as truth. That's what he did with Eve in the garden. Did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Maybe you're just looking at it from the wrong perspective. Maybe you should use your initiative here. Maybe you're mistranslating the Hebrew. You won't die, Eve. In fact, it's likely you'll probably just become more like God. He twists God's words against Eve. And here we are in the desert, same old tired tactics. Come on, if you are who you say you are, if you are who God says you are, just turn these stones to bread. That's what the word of God said is possible, so what's the harm? Throw yourself off a building. The angels will save you. It says so in God's word. Look at what's actually happening here. Satan is appealing to Scripture, to a, a kernel of the truth. He's, he's appealing to things that God has said, but he's, he's actually taking the truth completely out of context. He's distorting it, and he's repackaging it as a new kind of truth. What's the harm in eating that fruit, Eve? Fruit is God-given. It's good for you. You won't die. What's the harm in turning those stones into bread, Jesus? You're hungry. God wouldn't want you to be hungry. And each time... Jesus responds to Satan by declaring the truth of Scripture back to him. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Three quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, the the book that most clearly summed up the law of God to the Israelites thousands of years earlier when they were in the wilderness themselves. 
And so it doesn't seem odd to me that Jesus uses three quotes from Deuteronomy to correct Satan's faulty theology. And the implication of these points kind of again, just once, once again points us to the kind of life that Jesus would live and how we should live in light of that. Where thousands of years earlier, Israel, the people of God, had failed by not trusting God, which led them into the wilderness. Jesus, who's already in the wilderness, succeeds and overcomes by trusting in the very words of God. If you're facing a kind of wilderness moment yourself, a trial of some sort, this passage provides a good model for how to stand in that wilderness, how to resist Satan, and how to depend on all that God has said. Let's look a little bit closer with three things I think this passage outlines for us. The first one is, Satan is real, and that has implications for us. There's no escaping this, because he is intent on your destruction. And that means that the Christian life won't always feel rosy. In fact, it will from time to time involve wilderness trials that require a response of faith and obedience from us. I completely realize in the 21st century how crazy the idea of a devil sounds. Isn't the devil something less enlightened people in the medieval times believed in? But even this is part of how he operates, because he thrives on doing whatever will distract us from trusting God. And so to convince us that the idea of faith in a good God might be a bit old-fashioned, well, that's a success for him. If you've ever seen the film The Usual Suspects, the main character is called Kaiser Soze, and Kaiser Soze causes all sorts of chaos and death in the background of the storyline, just out of the limelight where he's never discovered and never caught. But he's always just off stage, just kind of pulling the strings and causing death and destruction wherever he is. And he ends up getting away from all of this with a fortune completely unsuspected, even though he's been a central character of the storyline all along. And the narrator sums up the problem of how this happens. He says, nobody believed he was real. That was his power. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Or, as the Bible puts it 2,000 years ago in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. It is just another one of his tactics. We can see this even today in our own culture. 500 years ago, the idea of not believing in God would have been impossible. Everyone believed in God. That was an obvious thing to do and always had been. It was unquestionable not to. Nowadays, the idea of faith in God is just one possibility among the very many that we've constructed. The idea of there being no God is actually a very modern concept. It's like that trick where you've got three cups and a ball underneath one of them, and if you shuffle them around quickly enough and you've got to guess where the ball is, if you, move, if you move the cups quickly enough and use just the right amount of distraction, it becomes impossible to locate the ball. You are, in a sense, blinded to what should be plainly obvious. Well, that, that's where we are now. There's just enough belief systems in the mix with just enough plausibility, and before you know it, you're blind to the truth. The, the idea of not believing in God takes every bit as much faith as it does to believe in God. Smoke and mirrors, Satan's tactics, and the, that's the battleground we found ourselves in. And so we need to know how to find and how to contend for what's true and to live by it. 
Think again about what he said to Eve. Did God really say that? Maybe if we just blur the lines a little bit and squint and reinterpret one or two of the words. If I just move the cups quickly enough here, there, look, that's better. You can do and be whatever you want to be. Eat the apple. It's your business and nobody else's. That's the prevailing demonic narrative of our age. Eat whatever apple you want to. That's what Satan would want for you. Because every time you metaphorically or actually eat and believe what you shouldn't, you're choosing to not eat or believe what you should. He says to Jesus, come on, it's just bread, you're hungry, what's the difference? Did God really say you shouldn't? Jesus could have purchased an empire from Satan in the wilderness. That was what was on offer. That was the apple on offer. All he had to do was bow down to him, and it was all his, all the glory and all the fame and all the adoration. But, and we must heed this warning, you can, I can, purchase an empire of our own desires, eat the apple of our own desires anytime we like, and lose everything in the process. Satan says, what's a little glory? What's a little sin? What's a little white lie? What's a little cheating? Just bow down to me instead. Purchase a kingdom of your own. In Mark 8:36, Jesus teaches this to his disciples. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? And this is who you're forfeiting your soul to. This is Jesus again describing Satan in John 8:44. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a murderer and a liar. He'll offer you an apple. He'll tell you you can be the king of your own empire. He'll tell you that if you throw yourself headfirst off the mountaintop into temptation, that you'll be safe. He'll tell you that a good God wouldn't let you fall. He'll distract you. He'll present you with all the options in the world when you're hungry and weak. He'll switch the cups around, and before you know it, you're turned around and you're unable to see what's true. So what do we do? Well, Jesus shows us we, we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We stand on the ancient and tested truths of God's word, and we trust him. That's how you resist Satan. That's how Jesus resisted Satan. Bread will eventually go off, but the word of God is eternal, and it's true, and it's the best weapon in our arsenal. So let's just look at that some more. The second point is that Scripture is a weapon, and like all weapons, it needs to be handled well. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, that's us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I love Scripture. I try to read it every day. I believe every part of it, and I believe that this verse in 2 Timothy tells me that every part of it is inspired by God and is completely relevant and essential for working out how to live. So if that's true, then it just makes sense that we should work out and learn how to read it and apply it. Fundamentally, here's a good rule of thumb. The Bible points us back, when you're reading it, every time to the Lordship of Jesus. 
It's like that kind of that old joke about questions in Sunday school. If the Sunday school teacher asks you a question, you don't know the answer, it's probably Jesus. All scripture should help us to know how to live in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord. So where an interpretation of scripture doesn't line up with that, then frankly, it's being mishandled or misinterpreted, and that's dangerous. And the reason I'm telling you this is because look at what Satan does in this encounter in verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, it actually says this in Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes mishandles and tries to use the very word of God against, well, God. He quotes from Psalm 91 to make his case. It's a silly tactic, really, but it's a relevant one for us to note because this is the way he works. Once again, what Satan is doing here is trying to draw attention away from God. He's shuffling all the cups again. He's essentially saying, come on, Jesus, Scripture says this, so let's test God and see if he's good to his word. And Jesus responds, biblically and accurately and points all the attention back towards the majesty and the authority of his father. Verse 12, Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, I'm delighted whenever I know that people are reading scripture, do it and do more of it. It's alive, it's God's word to you, and it'll teach you time and time again to trust Jesus and to live for his glory. So I really just want to be sure that as we do so, we're reading what the author intended and not doing what Satan has done here by trying to make it say something that justifies our own worldview. If you received a bill for 200 pounds, the author of that letter intends for you to pay 200 pounds. The way you might want to interpret that letter might be to want to pay 20 pounds. Can you see the problem here? The way an author intends for you to read a letter is the primary issue. Your response to it must be in line with their intention and not the other way around. And I'm saying this because I want to highlight the danger of us just ripping verses out of context like Satan does here in order to make a case for something that either isn't biblical or just brings glory to you. Here's a four-stage Bible reading diagnostic for you, because we need to ensure that our reading of Scripture is as the author intended, and I think, as a minimum, answers these four questions. So when you're reading God's Word, you should ask yourself, is what I'm reading and applying in the Bible, first and foremost, that Jesus is Lord? If not, you may be misreading it. Ask for some help. Number two, that I am called to absolute obedience to what it says, even when that obedience causes you struggle and sacrifice. I imagine it would have been really tempting for Jesus to turn the stones to bread after six weeks without food, but it, would have, it wouldn't have been obedient to what God was doing in his life in that moment. Number three, that I am called to worship him only, which means that we are often called to place our own agenda and desires and ideals to one side so that we can hear the intentions and the instructions of the author. My ideal would be to pay the 20 pounds, but the author has asked for 200 pounds. It's a non-negotiable. And four, that what I'm reading invites me into greater relationship with him. 
Actually, this is where my analogy of the bill completely breaks down, because the sender of the bill isn't doing so because he loves me and wants to bring me into relationship with him, but God does, and God is. And that's because he loves you with an everlasting and unbreakable love, such that he gave his son for you, and then he gave you his word to read and to know and to imbibe and to live by. If you struggle to read the Bible, or if you need advice on what you think it's saying to you in your situation, God has placed you in a Bible-reading community here in the church. Ask for help. Discuss it in life groups. Speak to one of the leaders. Don't go solo if you aren't sure. Even within our preaching team, when we're kind of preparing stuff like this, we say to each other, this is what I think the Word of God is saying, and this is how I think we should apply it. Just check my maths. Do you guys agree with me? Do you think that's right? And we work it through together in community. The other thing to be aware of is that we don't just rip a verse out of Scripture and just randomly apply it to any situation. The Bible is not a magic eight ball, and that's important because I see this on social media all the time, and so will your kids. It's a kind of a, don't worry, be happy sort of theology. Here's an example. Jeremiah 29:11 tells us, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. What a beautiful verse. And hallelujah, I believe every bit of it. But it's grieved me deeply when I've heard people just cut and paste that onto any old situation in which they aren't seen to be prospering by worldly standards. That somehow all that God wants for you is financial prosperity and happiness and nice holidays and perfect kids. And any time you're not achieving this, well, that's not of God because God would want you to be prosperous. Therefore, believe this. What do those same people do with the life of sacrifice that Jesus calls us into? Jesus said, each one of you, if you want to be my disciple, must take up his daily cross and follow me. What about the life of Jesus himself, the most perfect life ever lived, who experienced humiliation and death in order to fulfill the plans of God? How about the fact that this verse is written to captive exiles nearly two and a half thousand years ago, prisoners of war, captives of an enemy state in the Old Testament, and its purpose is actually to remind us that prosperity in God is about him bringing salvation and restoration to people, even through wilderness trials sometimes. Scripture isn't just a blank check that we can write our own amounts into and put ourselves in the center of. That's what Satan does in the wilderness, and Jesus responds by standing on the Word of God in its proper context, a context which prioritizes the majesty and the glory of God, and we need to do the same. And then it says in verse 13 at the end of the story, when Jesus finished all this tempting, it says he left him. He had no other weapons in his armory against the accurate handling and belief in the living word of God. We resist Satan as much as anything by trusting in God, knowing his word, and then applying it to our lives. Read the word. Sit under the word here as we teach it on Sundays. Discuss it with others in the faith. Ask for help and then stand on it confidently. We hold and we wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, confidently by the handle rather than clumsily by the blade, which make it dangerous. 
which is how I can stand here this morning and be confident in asserting this next biblical point. Satan is overcome. To just circle back to my first point for a minute, Satan is real, and we are in a battle between good and evil. That's biblically true, but it would be contradictory of everything I've already just said about handling scripture to say that unless it's done within its own context. Because the Bible teaches in Colossians 2.15 that when Jesus went to the cross, he disarmed the powers and authorities, that Satan and all that stand against God. In fact, it says that he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He disarmed and made a public spectacle of Satan because what looked like death and defeat for Jesus on a cross was the ultimate victory for him and all who would say yes to him as he paid the price to bring us into relationship by God by shedding his blood for our wrongdoing and then roaring through the chains of death as he rose to life three days later. By every single metric that I can think of, that spells victory over Satan, over sin, over death, and over any other type of wilderness trial you may find yourself in. And you can partake of in every aspect of that victory today, as you say yes to him. Because of the victory of the cross, because that battle has already been won, Revelation 12.10 tells us what happens at the very end of time as Jesus returns and he gathers us to himself for all eternity. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, Satan, who accuses them before God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Church, our our enemy is real. He prowls around looking to devour. He thrashes against all that is good. His mind is blinded by his own sense of self-glory. But he was defeated at the start when God hurled him out of his presence. He was defeated at the cross when Jesus made it possible for you and I to have a relationship with God. And the day is coming when the accuser, the deceiver, is defeated forever. This is the hope that we live with. This is the victory that Christ has won for us. Freedom from all the pain and suffering and death that Satan has brought into the world. This is the message at the center of this wilderness story of Luke 4, that now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. And we overcome every wilderness trial that Satan throws at us, and we partake of all the benefits and the riches of the kingdom of our God as we place our hope and our trust in its king, Jesus. Our lives, our experiences, our situations, our relationships, they will face hardship, temptation, stress, pressures, pain, These things are real. This is what Satan brought into the world. This is his mother tongue. But take heart today and every day and in any of these situations. Our God has conquered. Jesus has overcome Satan. He overcame him in the wilderness. He overcame him on our behalf on the cross. And he will one day overcome him for all eternity. And right now, today, in this very room, Jesus offers you protection from Satan and rest 
and peace from the havoc that he causes by trusting in his word and placing our faith in him. Victory is possible. Abide in me. These are the words of Jesus. This is what he says. Live in me. Don't just visit occasionally when things get tough. You can have life and peace and prosperity through the salvation and the deliverance and the healing of our God as you abide, as you live out your every day with Jesus. So come to him. That's the invitation this morning. What would that look like for you if you're lost or suffering? Abide in me. No preconditions. Just come. This series has invited us to consider what an encounter with Jesus might look like for us. And we've seen forgiveness and mercy and healing and deliverance, salvation, and today, victory over Satan. Let me pray that these things would be your experience of encountering him. King Jesus, and I do mean that, King Jesus, we worship you this morning. We surrender to you. We bow down to you, and we say thank you to you for all that you have done in the life that you lived, the life of hardship and humility and pain and wilderness suffering and eventually death on a cross by crucifixion for what it means for us sinful humans who can now know freedom, peace, salvation, and adoption into your family. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that if there's any amongst us here who are yet to know you or yet to know the benefits of knowing you, that by your Holy Spirit you would draw them close and bring them to a point of decision, even here in this room today, Lord God. And I pray for all of us, all of us brothers and sisters in you together today, that if there are trials, wilderness trials, raging in our lives, that you would strengthen us and remind us and help us to have faith in you and faith in what you've said in your word and faith in the fact that you have overcome the world and you have defeated Satan and that victory in you is 100% possible today. I ask for victory for us today. I ask for healing today. I ask for deliverance. I ask for mercy. I ask for forgiveness in your name and for your glory. Amen.